0: watchers keith here
1: this is kyle this is Eamon. and this is a weird i don't know this could be a little different from our normal shtick yeah Uh, i guess so i
0: don't even know how to start we have no plans going into this uh so and i imagine some people out there might not actually know this because if you're not active on certain facebook communities i mean it's possible i guess i don't know uh but it would seem weird to move on with our season six coverage without discussing something that happened with Highlander, I guess. Uh, so for those who don't know, the actor who played Richie Ryan, Stan Kirsch, has died. Uh, he died on January 11th. Um, and so we had released some Big Finish episodes that happened to be after that. We did get some comments like, wait a minute, guys, like, why are you releasing these episodes? Don't you know Stan died? It's like, well, yes. Uh, I don't know. It was We didn't quite know what to do. It's like, do we not release an episode? Do we record something? Do we go on as planned uh so i don't know that's kind of the path we went uh right. we released what we had and then but before we started anything new wanted to talk a little bit about uh what happened uh so anyway um i guess it should also be said stan i'm sure this is a widely available information if you've not heard about this already but uh stan not only passed away stan took his own life uh which is very sad
1: yeah phenomenally sad from uh, a very kind and sweet man we had the opportunity to meet him at the Highlander Worldwide Convention, and he was, like, among the most affable and engaged people we met there and was so generous with his time and, you know, remembered the names of fans and even played a game with us, which yeah. no one else would have been willing to do.
0: No. He yeah, he played a game, played with, a game Wendy, with Wendy P. And remembered right. Wendy's name. Yeah. yeah, Month, like, a month afterwards. Like, yeah. Which was... Good on him.
2: And just echoing Kyle, like, he was just a very nice, a nice, I, I had never met him before and he was just a very nice man to be around. Uh, s- always smiling um, at the convention and, you know, just very kind. Um, if I walked past him in the hallway, he'd say hello. Um, and even at the convention, he had to leave early um, due to some, some medical issues and he gave a heartfelt thanks to everyone and and got, you know, a standing ovation and everybody just really seemed to to like him a lot and, he seemed like a likable guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly well-deserved. Uh, you know, we could spend a long time talking about his contribution to the show, but actually our season five coverage included, you know, a retrospective with a lot of our thoughts on that. Yeah. So I don't know that it's worthwhile to repeat any of that here, but I'd encourage people to, you know, if they want to hear more about the Richie Ryan side of the story, yeah, to, to look at that stuff. It's weird but,
0: timing, too, with our podcasts that, like, our finale of season five ended with Richie's death. And as you'll hear next week, we'll kick off with the aftermath of that. Uh, But that this happened kind of in between that time is kind of weird.
1: Yeah. That it happened effectively right after the, we got to that point in the series is like, I don't know. It's a bizarre coincidence, Mm. but Keith, you knew him better than we did. Um, For those who don't know, you actually did some, Work for Stan in producing Mm -hmm. his podcast.
0: Yeah, we released a couple episodes. Um, I don't know if we're going to do anything with the remaining episodes that are done. Uh, We'll see. Time will tell. Not at this time, though. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Stan was a really nice guy. We talked on the phone quite a bit, especially when we were, like, launching his podcast and all that stuff. I don't know. He would call me all the time. Um, we just kind of shoot the shit. He was always super nice. Like, he just, I don't know. He's uh, maybe different than some other celebrities you might know, I guess. Uh, his demeanor. Like, just a real down-to-earth guy. Like, super, super friendly. He's from the East Coast. Uh, I don't know if that changed his perception of things. Uh, or even just kind of what his acting studio did. You know, where working actors work. Like, it was always about, like, getting a job. Like, he really put in a hustle. I will say, Kyle, you mentioned how just... Well, both of you mentioned how just nice he was. Always smiling. Very generous to, like, fans and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I remember we had lunch one day and he told me a story and it's funny because I believe it's a David Abramowitz story. He's like someone told me once, he's like, you know, when you get money, like if you're an asshole to begin with, having money usually just makes you like more of an asshole, but an asshole with like money. Uh, and he's like, but if you're like a good person, like always remember like where you came from. Like if, if if you're like a terrible actor when you're just starting off and you haven't really made it, but you think you deserve more, like you're going to be hell basically when you like make it. Uh, so I don't know, it was kind of like a remember your roots sort of thing. But he was always it seemed like, I guess, uh, David's impression or advice stuck with him because uh, he was recounting it to me uh, at lunch. And I don't even think he remembered who gave it to him, maybe, uh, which is funny. Like, but the advice meant something.
2: I mean, there are some there's some great tributes um, on the Highlander official Facebook page and on Adrian Paul's Facebook page. Um, if you want to head over there and read those tributes, um, if you haven't seen them, they're they're good. Kind of just things to look over and see how much Stan meant to so many people.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. i do not. No, I don't know what this should. This should be like what I don't know.
2: Well, there's not a rule book for this kind of thing. No. It's just like a sad
0: yeah it was very upset i don't know i found out i got a phone call from someone saying that you know uh they saw some stuff online and have you seen this and i was like wait a minute what yeah i don't know it's still like it's still weird yeah it's kind of surreal it's surreal like it doesn't feel like it happened like i don't know i can see stan sitting next to me like laughing like with his kind of goofy laugh uh like i don't know that's that still seems very like real
1: but yeah i don't know It's, it's uh one thing we would like to encourage is if any of you have stories that you want to share to send them to us, comment. If we get any interesting stories, we might feature them on our next mail episode. Uh, you know, it'd be good to kind of keep those stories going and share people's positive experiences with Stan. I think mm-hmm. that would be, you know, good, good catharsis for everyone.
0: Sure. Yeah, uh, so I guess if that's kind of what we want to say, the rest of this episode is going to be a re-release of our interview, which it was really nice. Stan was nice enough to come on for like our 100th episode uh, and kind of got it. He's like, oh, yeah, we can make like a big deal of it'll it be our your 100th episode. Like he understood that that was like a cool get for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: and he gave us a good amount of time.
0: Yeah, he really did. Yeah, yeah. He even called in. there was a, a separate. Remember that time he called in? Like, was it accidentally? An extra time. It was yeah. like an. Was it was it planned or was it just like we were talking and my phone was plugged in for something else and he called, but it was like we ended up turning it into like a little thing on the show. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so the rest of this show will be the interview of uh, him. This will be the last time you hear from us. We're not going to pop back at the end of the episode. But uh, hopefully you enjoyed the interview if you've already heard it. Great. Maybe it would be a good time to, you know, just hear Stan's voice again, which is nice.
1: And, you know, if you know anyone else who is struggling or in a bad place, just remember that there are resources out there to support you in helping if it's you. I'm very sorry to hear that, but there are resources out there to help you or your loved ones. Uh, I know that's a very difficult position to be in, and dealing with people who are going through that can be hard, but you don't have to do it alone. And, you know, a lot of people need someone there for them to help kind of get them, you know, over the next hill. So Yeah, we've all been uh, in dark times, Yeah, I think. And the Highlander community is a good community. If there's no one near you, I'm sure there is someone here that you can reach out to so uh everyone stay safe and uh you know i hope the community can come together in a sad time
0: welcome to highlander rewatch the podcast where each and every week we talk about another facet of the highlander universe i'm one of your hosts i'm keith
2: And this is Eamon.
0: And this week is a very special episode. Usually we're talking about the Highlander television series or films. uh, And this is one of our very special Chronicle episodes where we interview people that are intimately involved with the Highlander franchise. This week we are joined by actor and director Stan Kirsch. Welcome to the show, Stan. Oh, thank you, Keith. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us. Um, We figured we'd jump right in. Well, actually, let's let's not even jump right in. How are things going with you? It's been... uh, a little while, I guess, since uh, a lot of our fans have maybe heard from you. So what's, what's new in the world of Stan Kirsch? Uh,
3: things are good. Um, I, I guess, as you guys know, um, my wife and I own and operate Stan Kirsch Studios in L.A., and we're extremely busy uh, on a day-to-day basis, coaching, training actors, and uh, it's really become <laughs> an immensely full-time job.
2: We we follow you on Instagram, uh, and I think it's really cool that with your students you like promote when they're getting new roles on like TV shows and, and things like that. I, I think that's really awesome. Does, does that, oh, is that is that fulfilling to you? I, I, I imagine it is.
3: Oh, it's very very much. I mean, I've seen people with no credits or virtually none who, in a matter of. Just a couple of years are on a CBS television series, and it's not something that happens all the time. But watching somebody book something or you know have their career propel on you know into another level, it's always very gratifying. And it was actually my wife's idea to promote that stuff. And frankly, it's also good for business because actors are seeing oh, people are actually working. There there are results.
0: Can you tell us about how you got into acting in general first?
3: I was an actor when I was a little kid, uh, about four years old, in New York City where I grew up, and it happened very much by accident. I did, I did a couple of modeling jobs. I did one or two commercials for Campbell Soup, and so that's where it started. And then um, I was too young to really know what was happening. And my parents said, this is not going to be your life, and we want you to eat it go get an education. And then in high school, I got a little bit more into it. I took classes. I was in plays. Went to college thinking I was going to go into business or law, something practical. And then same thing happened again. I fell into it and went through a pretty rigorous, it was almost like a conservatory within the university and uh, came out of it. And my family was supportive. And I said, you know, I think I'm I'm, going to give this a shot. After college, I moved back to New York City, and I did a couple of off-off-Broadway plays. I got my SAG card through an MCI commercial, and I met with an agent. And um, around the same time, I auditioned for this ABC TV pilot, and I ended up getting it. And I went out to L.A. to shoot it, and I never went back. (laughs) (laughs) The pilot did not get picked up, but I stayed in Los Angeles, and I was off and running.
0: (laughs) So after that, how did you get into Highlander? Did you know anything about Highlander before you auditioned for the part?
3: You know, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it. I had heard of it, and it was my college roommate's, I think it was his favorite movie, the original (laughs) one. But I had never never seen it. And after I got the part, that's when I actually, uh, and going back that far, I had to go run to VHS tape, and okay. <laughs> it was very different. And that's right. when I saw the movie, and I was vastly impressed. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be part of this world. And, and knowing that Christopher uh, Lambert was going to be in the pilot, that was incredib- incredibly exciting. I mean, he was such a talented, unbelievable actor to watch right up close. And such a nice guy on top of it. He was just great.
0: So the the role of Richie Ryan, I guess he kind of wears a few hats in the show. I mean, he's like comic relief. Yeah. He's kind of like he's got a lot of jobs sometimes week to week in the uh, the earlier season. So can you tell us about a, a little bit about? guess what it's like to play like a supporting role in a series as opposed to a lead. I'm sure that's got to be a different experience for an actor.
3: Your job is to service the show and the show, you know, being called Highlander, you know, I mean, it revolves around Duncan McLeod and his character. And so week to week, knowing that your job is to either, you know, push his buttons or uh, do something wrong so that he can come in and save the day or have him teach a lesson, you're, you know, sort of, uh, I guess I would equate it to basketball. You're kind of throwing up the alley-oop so that he can dunk it, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah When I when I'm working with actors now, I tell them, you know, that's, a similar analogy that I'll use and then I'll even say guest starring is like basically going to someone's someone else's house for dinner. You don't have to cook, you don't have to clean up, but you don't get to choose what you eat or where you sit, you know, you just sort of yeah, and and then being the lead is sort of like everything falls on you, you're very re- you're responsible for everything, you're pretty much there all the time. And then a supporting character would fall somewhere in between there. You know, you're choosing maybe like an appetizer and you're organizing some of the seating, but you're not in charge.
0: (laughs) That's a good analogy. Uh,
3: How was the chemistry (laughs) on set? The chemistry was great. I mean, fortunately, because we never shot a day of the series in L.A. I mean, I don't even think in the United States now that I think about it. And I mean, it was very exciting to get, you know, flown off to Vancouver in 1992. And, you know, I'm going to shoot for nine months in a row. It was very exciting and surreal at the time. But fortunately, Adrian and I got along really well, and we made a really great effort, and I got to give him credit. He was more familiar with this, really tried to make all the guest stars who came on the show feel very welcome and warm, and not all sets, to be frank, are like that. So, But we also knew the show would be better. Their acting would be better. Our scenes would be better, and we just have more fun. You know, the producers. Uh, you know, we we just sort of all had a had a pretty tight knit family. Don Panessa and I became very close, and to this day we're still very close. And he produced the first short film that I ever directed, and also ran a camera on it. And so, and, and him and his wife Renee, they were like my aunt and uncle almost. Oh, and wow. uh Yeah, Renee would joke like, oh, I'm the second mom. That was great. And he taught me an immense amount about not just acting, but the whole process. There were days when I wasn't shooting, and he would say, I want you to come to the editing day. And it wasn't really a a normal thing that actors would go. And he would do it to show me how the show was cut, and also to pull up clips of, you know, things that I'd done that were good, and like, this is why this worked, or... This is why this didn't work. And, you know, clips of other actors and who were more seasoned and, you know, show me, you know, how subtlety came into play. And I learned a lot, not just about acting, even though Don wasn't really on the set too much, I learned a tremendous amount from him and the entire filmmaking process.
2: That's really interesting. Like, we recently talked to director on the series Clay Boris and he mentioned like knowing editing yeah. is really helpful in the process of like making a television show and like knowing Oh my god it's key to do the right thing so that that that's it's key. really fascinating
3: It's key because you have such little time and you can't go back I mean technically you could we the scene at a later point in time, but it's, it's not like doing a movie or ending one episode on a Wednesday, and you're starting the next one on a Thursday, and you've got to be so organized, know what you're doing, and you've got to, as a director, I realize now, be editing the show in your head as you go. You don't have time to really pick anything up, and time is crucial. You know, you got to know where you're going to spend a little bit more time on a scene, where you're going to be able to move through a scene a little bit quicker, where you're going to do more coverage, where you're going to do something in a one-shot. And then hopefully the actors enable you to move along. I mean, I had a good chemistry with all of the directors, with some did more episodes than others. But I also learned that when you're in a TV show, even if you're a lead or supporting, a you know, supporting lead as I was, ultimately, just move the show along and pick your battles. If you're if every scene you're doing, you're asking for an uptake, you know, you're just holding things up. And, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit there. I don't want, I want to move. You know, pick your battles. I mean, if there's a particular scene where something is really important, great. But other than that, it's really best to just let the show move along. I mean, the producers and the director are doing their best to try to make 22 movies a year. It's an incredible job. The, the pressure is immense.
0: I can imagine. Did you influence the character of Richie Ryan at all? Like, what was the character presented to you as? And then obviously went through a lot of incarnations. Uh, you became like a motorcycle racer at some point. Was, was there any of your own personal interests uh, involved in that?
3: Um, not mine. I had ridden a motorcycle for another TV series that I did prior to Highlander. It was a uh, Saturday morning TV show called Riders in the Sky that played at like 7 a.m. in the morning um, and had some live-action puppets, and it was pretty neat, but it was for kids, and I was meant to ride in the show. And so they had me ride around the lot, and the riding wasn't difficult. Uh, On that show, it was all on one soundstage. What was difficult was starting the bike, and 60 feet later... I'm going land on a mark while there's four cameras right in front of you. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I learned a little bit there, but it was not really something I did. And so there was, <laughs> there was honestly quite a bit of doubling on the motorcycle riding, especially considering how great they wanted my character to be. I remember to this day watching the clip where that ended up in the opening credits where I supposedly go through the glass. Go through the
2: window? Car. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I I, and I think the guy that was doubling me at that point was a professional motorcycle rider, motocross racer and I couldn't believe what he did and I thought, oh my god, that's me. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that one really wasn't something that was in the interest of mind i did pitch to the producers hey if you really want me to do this why don't you know you pay for some lessons and you know pay for me to properly do this in the hiatus but that that never came to fruition so oh.
2: no, no professional development i think it
3: was funds? i yeah. think it was easier on them to just well we'll just double you when it, we need to <laughs> i
2: was i was curious since you did have you know so many transformations as a character on the show i wondered did you ever wish like you got to have flashbacks and, like, use an accent or dress in, like, a goofy outfit like some of the other immortal characters? I shouldn't say goofy, but, yeah. Different time period um, outfits?
3: You know, at the time, I that never really uh came to mind. But looking back that would have been pretty cool. Um at the time I wasn't really I I guess I wasn't thinking about that. I mean as soon as they were going to a flashback I knew, you know, I had a few hours or I wasn't working that day. Right. And uh <laughs> Yeah, at the time I was you know, I was young. I was in my early twenties and be it Vancouver or Paris. There were so many things to do. So, you know, especially at the beginning of the show, I, I, I had a good time with the off time. Later, as the series progressed, I wanted to be working more, acting more outside of the show. So our contracts w- were changed. And I, and no, no, as you guys know, no character at that point was all shows produced, which means you're in every episode except Adrian. Right.
2: Right. Like sometimes you'd so have Mo- Joe or Charlie yeah. or Maurice or whoever.
0: Right.
3: Exactly, exactly. But I, but I, but like I said at the time I never really thought about it, but looking back it would have been pretty cool. Uh
0: you you mentioned filming in Vancouver and Paris. You're a guy that's gotten to experience a lot of different facets of this industry. Can you tell us about what the differences are about, like, the L.A. scene, the Vancouver scene, which is actually pretty big in the, the entertainment industry, and then filming in Paris. What are all the, the differences and challenges working in these well, places?
3: Well, L.A. is the biggest scene. I mean, there's there's the, the industry is so big, and it's very different now than when we did Highlander. And it, and it, it sounds basic, but the Internet changed everything. It changed with the way agents are communicating with actors. Things are moving so much faster. Also, at the time, you didn't really have access to scripts or breakdowns for roles. You had to go literally pick up your material if you were auditioning. Now everything moves so fast, and there's a gazillion people here in L.A. Vancouver... When we were there, it was really at the inception of what's become like a mini LA and now I haven't been there since we did the show, but I know there's an immense amount of production going on and it's really just a slightly smaller version of Los Angeles. But at the time, as far as I knew, 21 Jump Street shot there and Wise Guy, which Jim Burns was on right. uh, with Ken Wall. They were doing, um, <laughs> you guys know, the David Duchovny show. Oh, yeah. Exiles uh, X- files was shooting up there, too. Yeah. 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 X-Files, yes, yeah, right. yeah. They started doing that. And then more shows manifested as we were there. But at the time, it was kind of a new scene. And to the point where the city wasn't that congested, we could literally shoot in two locations in a a day, pack up the entire, you know, all the trucks, everything, you know, go from the city into the country. And now, as I understand it, you could never do that. There's so much production. The city is much bigger. It was advised to me at the time, hey, maybe you should think about buying an apartment here. And I thought, I don't need an apartment and I'm, I'm, I'm staying in a hotel. Uh, looking back, that would have been a very good investment. <laughs> and Paris was just insanely exciting. I mean, being right in the middle of the city. And I grew up in New York City, so I missed that kind of energy. I mean, L.A. is, you know, it's a very big city, but it's really one massive suburban area. You have to drive everywhere, and Paris is, you know, a walking city, or you know, you're, you're on the subway, the metro. But that was just it's so exciting. I will say the novelty did wear off a little bit. At the beginning, you know, there was a lot of exploring and a lot of things to do, but Vancouver was a more practical place to do a show. if If this makes sense, like, it was not easy to get to a gym in Paris. You know, I would go to the concierge at the hotel ask you know, hey, can I get to a gym? And it's very different in Europe. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they were like, Jim, why would you want to go to a gym? And what you know, <laughs> what do you do? You know? Yeah, it's very different. And Jim Burns would joke, uh, you know, I can I'd go downstairs and go around the corner and buy a cartier watch, but you know, I don't know where I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a cup of coffee. <laughs> 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 so it was great, it was exciting. But as time wore on, it did sort of lose a little bit of the, the novelty, although the show was much bigger in Europe. So as we got into season four or five, we were more well-known there, which was, at the time, it was, it was fun. It was exciting. You walk down the street, people are turning their heads, which was not the case in L.A. and a little bit more in Vancouver. But in Paris, the show was really big. And so, especially being young and being my first, Lead in the TV show, it was it was fun, awesome, yeah, and and obviously pre cell phones and everything you're doing being recorded, uh, we probably got away with some stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really uh, funny you bring that up because we talked to Adrian a number of months ago and he was talking that uh, you and him would play a lot of like pranks on set. He told us about like a crazy food fight you had. What was kind of the camaraderie like on the set? Are there any crazy stories you want to share with our audience? You know, I didn't
3: remember the food fight until you mentioned it, but yes, we did. (laughs) Now that now that you mentioned it, we had a huge food fight, I recall, in Paris, I think the producers got a little annoyed because the food (laughs) got all over the clothes. And, you know, there was some time where I put a sign on his back, and he was walking around the set for uh, a considerable amount of time, didn't know the sign was on his back. There's a story that's out there that one time I dressed up as a woman to see if he would buy it and he claims he didn't but I think he bought into it for a little <laughs> while <laughs> you know so there, there, there was a considerable amount of practical joke
0: yeah awesome the arc of your character obviously changed a lot can you tell us a little bit about when you left the show uh, where actually we should give you a little background uh, so the premise of Go our course. show is we've been watching basically every single episode of the series in order and we talk about it in detail and we kind of give an analysis of it what we think
3: you guys probably before remember a lot more than I
0: do Yeah. well it's funny because well both uh, Eamon and I we grew up watching this like when we were teenagers now and this whole podcast came about because we were like hey we should revisit this like show we loved when we were kids which has been really great to do but yeah we're about like halfway through season three but of course as many of our listeners know your character leaves the show Uh, in season five. Can you tell us about, like, were you happy with that arrangement? Was that something that was, you know, mutual? Did you like the way your character departed the show?
3: It was a bit sudden. I mean, it wasn't really something that I knew was gonna happen you know a a long time prior to it happening but I wasn't at all disappointed I was doing other things in LA and I think the producers knew that I know I had done a Friends episode and I've done a couple of TV movies I think and I I can't recall exactly but I think all good things must come to an end so they presented it to me and I thought okay you know that's that I mean we've done five seasons and you know I felt like The character and the time that I spent on the show had pretty much run its course anyway at that point. So it was very amicable. I didn't really know that it was going to happen until slightly before it did, I believe. And, you know, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say at this point. But I think that they didn't know if the show was going to get picked up for a sixth season. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make a big dramatic end at the end of season five, and now, having been in the business for a long time, I know this is what shows do, you know, and sometimes it means killing off a character, and that actor is, you know, they're the one getting killed, but it's really going to bring a lot of ratings to the show, and it's going to, you know, be a big dramatic moment, and there's always ways to bring people back, should, should one want to. But I had a good time with the episode, and yes, it was very mutual, and it was fun, and it was exciting, and it was, you know, surreal at the time, but I was already in a sense, moving on and doing other things anyway. So it was it was totally fine.
0: Awesome. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about what you're up to now? Uh, you obviously did a lot of guest roles after Highlander. Can you tell us a little bit about your move to directing? In the
3: early 2000s, I was interested, and it sounds cliche, an actor wants to be a director. I had an opportunity to... To teach, and I, I started teaching and coaching actors on the side while I was still what I would call an actor for hire, meaning I had a manager, I had an agent. You know, they would call, you have auditions, uh, they would field offers if there were. But I was more interested in being a little bit more in control. And a friend of mine and I came up with this idea to do Straight Eyes, a movie. At the time, there was a show on Bravo called. Clear eyes for the straight guy, and right. we just came up with the most idea: what if we just spun it around? And once we got the idea, it happened pretty quickly. And I was able to assemble a, a fantastic cast: Alan Dale, David Hornsby, Kelly Mantle, who came out in a big movie this past year, and I'm sure I'm forgetting other names. But it was very exciting to put that together, and every single person worked on a volunteer basis. You know, we paid for the entire shoot and and everything, but you know. Don on Knesset, as I mentioned before, he came in, he produced it, he brought in camera guys, and a lot of people worked for free, and it was really touching that people would spend that time, and it was a a long two-day shoot on a weekend, and he and I edited for about six to nine months, uh, (laughs) which was an arduous process for a 15-minute movie, (laughs) Um, and I learned a lot from him there, you know, at some point, he he had this thing that he taught me, is it going to be different or is it going to be better, and we tried a lot of incarnations of it but my eye was moving away from you know being in in the piece to wanting to really be outside the piece control more things and fortunately it came out well and we won an award at a film festival at the Griffin International Film Festival I think it was in Missouri and we actually ended up cutting it into segments to do a sort of a uh, wet miniseries but we to this day haven't put it out there and it's something we really should do I don't know how relevant it is anymore more. At the time, I was sort of at a crossroads. I was either going to delve further into directing and really make, you know, a valiant effort at that point to spend a lot of money on a great website and put all my stuff out there and do that. And then the studio just sort of happened organically. You know, people, I, I had been teaching for a while and coaching for a while, like I said, on the side. And then people just started calling and, you know, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? And it was definitely a leap for my wife and I had to say, okay, we're going to do this. And we're going to go get commercial space. And uh, eventually she had to put her... Acting and hosting career on the side, and we had no concept that it would get as large as it has and now we've got three studios and a lot of teachers and i mean it's been it's been ama- it's been amazing it's been, it's been great uh it's been a tremendous amount of work so I just sort of had to put all that on hold and that's something I definitely would love to revisit as time goes on more directing. Cool, cool. And then we would shoot reels for actors. I did a commercial for Qualcomm. And then this short film, Us One Night, that you had mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that was really the first time someone came to me. Other, Well, the commercial... And said, you know, I, I you know, I'm going to fund this thing, and I want to. When, when you start directing, essentially, you have to self fund everything. Nobody's just going to give you money to go do something. And then you get to a point where, okay, well, you're not directing, you know, an, a TV series for NBC, but people are coming and saying, hey, I want you to do this, and I'll assemble all the parts and do it to your liking. And so that was a fun and exciting thing too. Although the guy that produced it, well, I guess we both brought people to the table, but he brought a good cast together there was Alison Bree who now has blown up she was on Mad Men yeah, and she was also on Community I think mm-hmm. and uh, Liza Wheel who's on the Gilmore Girls now's on How to Get Away with Murder so we had a really good cast and that was a tough shoot because we had to do it all in one night and it took place at one party And essentially, we shot the end of the movie first. As the sun was setting, we made it look like the sun was coming up. (laughs) And then we shot the entire film indoors. And then as the sun was rising, we shot the beginning of the movie as if the sun was coming up. But we were under the gun that we had to get it done because we had to get out there to get the first scene of the movie at, at like 5.30 in the morning.
0: So, you run an acting school now. Can you tell us exactly what is your acting school about? Like what is acting coaching? That's a little different than if you went to college to study acting, right?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, this wasn't really something that to my knowledge was around in the 90s when I was really doing the bulk of my acting. And it's now something that's much more prevalent. I mean, I know there are people that do this. What we do is basically the studio consists of classes and private coaching. Private coaching is something that for the most part, actors utilize when they have an audition. And they'll come in, they'll send their sides, which is the material that they have to do for the audition. And uh, myself or any one of our coaches will read them ahead of time. They come in and whether it's a 15 minute, you know, coaching or coaching, can go up to a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, depending upon the length of the material. And we'll go through and basically, you know, answer questions. I would say, if I had to put it in a nutshell, direct them through the audition. You know, I would make this choice here, try this here, try that there, so that they lead the coaching feeling as confident and as strong as possible, going into the room with the choices that they've made. I would say that's probably 75% of it and then maybe 25% is people who've already booked things and they want to go through the material that they've booked. And I mean I've worked with people who are leads on series. And they're coming in every week or we're Skyping every week if they're out of town, going through the scenes, going through, you know, the choices that they'll make, talking about a character arc. That's the private coaching. We also do something which is much more prevalent in the business now than ever, and I think it's only going to augment which is actors having to put themselves on tape for auditions. So we have two taping studios. They're lit, they're mic'd, the quality is, is great, and they'll come in and have to put themselves on tape for the audition. So we do that as well. And then we also run classes. There's essentially three different types of acting classes out there. There's what's called scene study, where actors are paired up with other people and other actors, and they're, they're doing scenes for anywhere from a couple of weeks to, you know, multiple weeks or even months at a time. And then there's what's called cold reading classes where actors are given the material right there. They have a few minutes. They come in. The teacher will give them notes. Art classes are designed to replicate what happens to actors who are out there in the business, who are auditioning, who are doing this on a regular basis. So we're working with current film TV material. We focus on the audition process. We don't assign scenes and we're pulling all our material from current film and TV roles that are casting at that given time. Like for example, tonight I'm going to read, Two or three scripts for pilots that are currently casting. That's what the actors are going to be doing those roles in class tomorrow night. And it's my job or any of the other coaches job to address what would be stronger choices, how to, you know, how to navigate their way through the material as solidly as possible. And there's people in class who have been series regulars. They're not classes designed for a beginning act. Their class is designed for people who already had training, who are now at a point where they're ready to go out and audition or have been auditioning in some cases for decades. Uh, and then in that, and in that case, it's more like their gym. They come in on a week to week basis because they want to keep those skills as sharp as possible. The business has become incredibly competitive and agents promote coaching and training for their actors more so than ever because there's that edge that you need going in the room and just a choice here a choice there can make the biggest difference in booking a part and can change one's career awesome. does that help <laughs> oh yeah absolutely
0: is, is there a particular uh, like stan kirsch style of acting is there a, a philosophy you prescribe to is there a piece of advice that you always like to give your students
3: well you know years ago i would you know you know, meet a waiter waitress in restaurants and say, Oh, what's your method? Is it Stanislavski? Is it Meisner? All these sort of old school techniques. Mm-hmm. And I would say, Our method is, you know, go book a job. <laughs> right. How to book a job. When actors come to the studio, they first take a class that we call the boot camp, where they're working on specific scenes that we've already selected as teachers. All the teachers are working in the boot camp, and they're doing drama, they're doing multi-camp comedy, they're doing single-camp comedy, and they're sort of getting our terminology, our vernacular, the way we suggest approaching this material, and addressing all the questions they have about, you know, how to make the strongest choices, auditioning in front of a camera, auditioning, in you know, live in front of producers and then from there they'll go into ongoing class but there's really not a philosophy other than other than booking we're very practical in our approach to the work and I don't disparage anybody but I don't talk to anybody in class about tell me who this person reminds you of or what was your relationship like with your father that's not what we <laughs> right. we're more as coaches directing people through the scenes so what when I say that I don't mean it facetiously at all like our mess that our philosophy is how to book a job and uh if you don't mind my going for another minute on this no of course when not. i started in the business even when we started highlander 1992 there were three major networks that were making calm half-hour comedies one-hour dramas they sort of all had a very similar pace and tone and now we're in an era where there's Hundreds of channels that are out there. There's networks branding themselves on certain slogans like TNT, they know drama. USA sells characters are welcome. And now with the advent of all these other platforms, the Hulu's, the Amazon's, Netflix. It's imperative that actors are watching everything. They're knowing and understanding the tones of different shows or features if they're going in, what that director's done before, and making the appropriate kinds of choices for that particular piece. Uh, I mean, essentially, and this is a broad example, but what will make someone brilliant, you know, in a Clint Eastwood film audition will make them, you know, look ridiculous in a sitcom for Nickelodeon. And then the <laughs> reverse is true. And today, more than ever, and I don't think it's going to change. It's only going to increase. It is very incumbent upon actors to know these tones, be familiar with these tones, and make those kinds of choices. And I do meet actors that are good actors, but they don't know the difference. They don't know, okay, what do I do? because this is an MTV comedy? Will I be making choices that are different than a CBS show? Uh, and you would make different kinds of choices. Know when maybe a little ad-libbing is appropriate, when that's not appropriate and it wasn't imperative that actors really knew that when I started and this kind of training didn't even exist so that's more and more why agents are sending their clients to you know places such as us people are coming out of schools in some cases Juilliard, Carnegie Mellon, CalArts, huge theater programs with an immense amount of training but they've yet to get into a room and audition for Big Bang Theory or The Last Ship or a show like Casual and they want, they, they want and need their actors to understand, know those, the tones of these shows and films and how to go in and successfully book those jobs. And I hear it every day. I represent good actors, but I need them to make the strongest appropriate choices going in the room. And that's where we come in.
2: Like I was trained as an illustrator. It's like target marketing almost. Like you have to know what yes, your strength very much is like that. and kind of go for that niche.
3: Yeah. You know, knowing what you sell, your essence, your strength, and then knowing what you're auditioning for. I mean, we, we give out a lot of quotes, uh, and literature to art, uh, to actors when they first come to the studio. And one that comes to mind is from a woman named Dorian Frankel, who's a big casting director. She was doing Parks and Rec and she said, I could tell within 10 seconds in an audition if an actor understood the tone of the show. And if they didn't understand the tone of the show, it didn't matter how good they were. I couldn't even give them a call back because we don't have time to explain. This is what the tone of the show is. They already need to know that. They need to be familiar with that. And the tone of my show, she said... You know, it's going to be different than other shows, and I suspect it's the same no matter what you're auditioning for. And it is. You know, on top of that, it's our job as teachers and coaches where we work to know what those tones are and be familiar with those and not approach every piece of material with the same set of tools.
0: Awesome. That's brilliant advice. Well, we've heard word that you're going to be attending the Highlander 25th anniversary convention in L.A. Is that true?
3: Yeah, I'm very excited about it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, Also, speaking uh, for ourselves, we were kind of too young to attend a Highlander convention when we were younger, so I know we're very happy and excited to to be going to this a little older now. I'm um,
3: excited to meet you guys in person. Yeah, yeah, uh, us so, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it's also kind of crazy to think that Highlander was 25 years ago now. What yeah, what is tell me about it. yeah? <laughs> Looking back on it, what is what does Highlander mean to you? Uh, I mean, like it's it's kind of remarkable that the the fandom has you know persisted, which is
3: really cool. Oh my God, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I would have never thought in 1992 that 25 years later I'd be going to a convention. <laughs> uh,
0: we, we also always ask our uh, guests, you know, if, would you want to be immortal if you had the choice?
3: Would I want to be immortal? That's an inter- interesting question. You know, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, and being a part of the show and seeing that, and even the movies, which I've now seen, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so much pain and suffering and so much loss, that I think that would be very trying and very difficult. I mean, the bonuses is um, you get to experience a lot, but I don't know that that's something that I would necessarily choose. The show itself, it was definitely a pivotal and defining moment in my life, and my career. I was very young in my acting career when I started, and I met people like Adrian and like Don Panessa that I still talk to and I'm still close to. I had been working before, but that's where I really learned about really how to navigate your way through a set and really having to take a role and not just essentially shoot the scenes that you auditioned with, but get new material every week. Uh, I learned about adrenaline and how to keep that going, not to waste too much energy too soon. And uh, I really learned about the filmmaking process before then. And I was only in L.A. for a year and a half when I got the part, but everything was so quick. You know, I'd get a part, go to the set, shoot it, be done. And I came out of it a much more seasoned actor. I came out of it far more seasoned about the business, how things work, the politics of it. It was interesting for me personally because when I started auditioning and even the Richie character, I was auditioning for 17-year-olds. I came out of the show and was all of a sudden playing attorneys. And I thought, I can't really look that much different. But I was told by casting directors and, you know, people that I was working with then at the time that e- there's something different in your eyes. And I look back now and I realized I had experienced so much, and especially you know going to these other countries and you know shooting in these you know various places, I grew up a lot you know as a person and as an actor, a lot of that experience I take and use to this day.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned adrenaline. I'm wondering when you first started on the show, it seems like a lot of pressure like you have to deliver on this show yes. week after week. Like, did you yes. use adrenaline at first to kind of get you through having to deliver, and then that change over time? Or I, I'm wondering what like that evolution is.
3: Well, I remember sitting down with Peter DeLuise, who was a guest star in the very beginning of the series. Uh, it was one of the first few episodes. Yeah, I think
2: that's a family it, tree. Sorry to interrupt.
3: Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. Y- you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> And he had just come off 21 Jump Street. Although he was a guest star, and I was at the time a series regular, I looked up to him. And we became friends, friendly, I should say, and friends at the time. We went for lunch or coffee, and I will never forget this. He said, can I give you a piece of advice? I said, absolutely. You just came off, you know, five, six years on Jump Street. And he said, when you're not shooting, sit in the chair. Go back to your dressing room you know it's 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 exciting now it's new it's something you know that's like wow and so you know you want to be sort of part of the action all the time but you're going to need that energy as the day goes on and you're going to need that energy seven months from now and and it was probably we started in july of 92 i do remember and so that was probably sometime in august and he knew enough to know that we'd be shooting come march and it was a great great piece of advice and you, know, like all advice, I think when you get it, you know you're sort of like, "Okay, that sounds great, you know, and you apply it a little bit, <laughs> and then, as when you really need it, you're like, "Oh, I remember Peter saying that, and it was definitely something that I learned with time how to not only hold on to that energy, like I said, for the day, you've sort at the beginning when you're shooting, you know at that time, there was a lot of master shots and then close ups, and you know I wanted to give everything right. At, very beginning and not realizing, hey, the close-up might not happen for two or three hours. So I learned about that and something I teach to actors today, you know, look at the whole picture, ask what the shot list is. You know, if your close-up is coming like fourth or fifth, you know, relax a little bit. You know, you, you don't want to be spent by the time that happens. And then also, like I said, in the long run, when you're working on a series like that, you've got to think three, four, five, six months ahead. And when you have time, take a break, rest. Cause you're going to need that energy at some point later. And especially with all the traveling involved.
0: Is there any crazy story you've never shared with anybody about Highlander at a convention or whatever that you want to like share with our audience?
3: (laughs) A crazy, well, um, I love doing the convention. I always had such a good time. The fans were amazing. The conventions were fantastic. I don't know if these are really crazy stories, but I think it was the last two that I did where they were special to me because I was able to bring my wife. We purchased her wedding ring in Indianapolis at the convention there. And so that was an exciting thing for us personally. And I do remember one in Denver, and this was probably in the 90s. My sister went, and uh, she's not a public speaker and not one for you know being up in front of a crowd. And I sort of pulled her up on stage, and she said said a few things, (laughs) and I'll (laughs) never forget that.
2: Is it weird that conventions have kind of, like, become a thing, almost, that actors have to go to? It's weird that it's, like, kind of become, like, part of a thing of, like, promoting a show or something. I don't know if that's interesting or not, but it's just (laughs) the thought.
3: I mean, now I have a lot of my clients who will come to me and say, oh, you know, they're on a, a you know big uh, animated series or they're doing a show for Disney or something, and they, they mention, like, oh, they want me to do a convention, and that's, oh, my gosh, absolutely. You know, do it. Meet the fans. The fans are the people that are keeping you employed. It's definitely something that's, I think, a part of one's job. And, I, you know, I look at it as a particularly exciting thing for people because, to be frank, it's not like you can just sort of, okay, I'm going to fly to, you know, To Indianapolis, say, and I'm going to meet Brad Pitt. It doesn't really work that way. (laughs) You know, but when you're on, you know, these shows like Highlander that, you know, develops a cult following, people have the opportunity to go meet the stars of this show in person, and I know how special it is for people to have that opportunity and, you know, get that picture and it seems like, oh, it's just like, you know, another thing that you're doing but people have really gone out of their way and they've spent, you know, in some cases a considerable amount of their income to attend these things. I feel as an actor it's incumbent upon one to go and, and really give the most of themselves because it means so much to the people who are there and it is a part of the job.
0: Cool. Well, Stan, thank you so much for joining us. It was absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, we got to learn about the acting side of things, the directing side, the editing side, the coaching side. Like we we got like a crash course. I think uh, we got our own like mini <laughs> mini coaching session on uh, the industry tonight, which was really awesome. This was a true treat for us, and I hope the fans have enjoyed reconnecting with you. And also, I hope a lot of the fans are making sure they log on to HighlanderWorldwide.com to get tickets to uh, meet Stan and the other stars of Highlander at the Los Angeles twenty fifth anniversary convention. And also, oh, thank you guys. I had I had a great time. Awesome, awesome. It was my my pleasure very cool uh well thank you so much stan for joining us and we will see you in october thanks yes. again thank you i right,
3: look forward to it all right see ya Bye.